Welcome back to Shrinking It Down, Mental Health Made Simple. I'm Jean Bresson. I'm Khadija Booth-Watkins. And um, uh, just a note, uh, today's topic involves a conversation about teen relationship violence, and it may be hard for some of our listeners. Um, we have a special guest uh, who I'll introduce in a minute. Last week on our podcast, we began a really difficult but important conversation about teen relationship and breakup violence. Uh, if you haven't already listened to that episode, we recommend that you go back and do so uh, before tuning in this week. We started this conversation by hearing about Lauren Dunn Astley's story from Lauren's mom, Mary Dunn. Lauren was murdered nearly 10 years ago by her ex-boyfriend in the months immediately following their breakup. Last week, we talked about the risks of dating violence, what we as parents, counselors, friends, and other caregivers need to know to help identify and possibly prevent this problem. This week, to continue the conversation, we're joined by another very special guest, Lauren's father, Malcolm Astley. Today with Malcolm, we're going to explore the warning signs of dating violence including the very strong emotions that often arise in teen romantic relationships and how to help teens and young adults cope with these emotions during difficult or dangerous situations and after the loss of important relationships. Uh, now let me introduce Malcolm. Uh, Malcolm comes from a background, as he points out, uh, from, from, from the dinner table. His uh, parents and many family members who are psychoanalysts, psychologists, uh, and working in, in the field of psychology. Uh, and so this was a common topic of discussion, not just psychology, but of human relationships and the ins and outs of relationships. Beyond the, the kitchen table, uh, he was principal of Lexington Elementary School for 10 years. And as an educator, his focus, as it is here, was on prevention. So Malcolm, welcome. Did I get it right? Thank you. Yes, that's fine. So uh, before we begin, uh, let's start with our weekly check-in. So how was this week for you, Khadijah? You know, it's kind of like Groundhog's Day. It's the, it feels like the same every day. And I don't think I did anything particularly exciting other than bake a pizza, which came out pretty good. <laughs> that's, that's, that's all I got for this week. How about you, Malcolm? How was your week this week? Um, the uh, the times are crazy, as you've alluded to, and time is strange, and it gets bent and uh, blurs along. But there's all there was so also bubbling hope uh, in several settings where I was this week. I uh, just finished up with online work with Lincoln Sudbury students and their violence prevention program. They've been working at this for quite a while now, so it was very exciting to. Uh, hear their enthusiasm and their insights and uh, their hopes about becoming more and more skilled with each other and in the settings they go off to in helping others with violence prevention. Jane, what was your week like? Well, busy as usual. Uh, my, my week was also hopeful. Uh, we'll come to the news at the end, but um, I think what was most hopeful to me is um, a, a new take on this war and the pandemic and the feeling that um, there's going to be a light at the end of this tunnel, that we've all been in isolation, uh, remote from our families and our friends, and with, with vaccines being disseminated and with a national effort, uh, I think um, 
it's very hopeful that we're going to finally begin life in a, in a normal way. Uh, it's been almost a year. It has been a year. There's uh, that time problem. <laughs> so, so yeah, I, that's right. I, I keep forgetting how long anything lasts. Um, so I'm, I'm hopeful too. So let's, let's begin. Uh, now, last week we heard about Lauren's story. Uh, and those who listened may also have watched the video you, Malcolm, and Mary produced through the Lauren Dunn Astley Memorial Fund. And by the way, the link to that uh, uh, to that uh, fund and the video is is on the Clay Center website for anyone who hasn't seen it. Now, as her father, does anything stand out to you now in reflecting back as warning signs before the tragic ending? Um, of course, I've concentrated a lot of my energy on that. And I, I, th- I want to say, I usually say early in, in such conversations, the, the grief can rise again for me. It's constantly with me, a form of PTSD. But I, I just take it as caring, in fact, valuable that way and helping me to be open to the caring of other people and to support uh, their caring. So if the tears flow, give me a minute and I'll recover and uh, one will go. Malcolm, thank you for coming on with us today and talking about such a personal and painful story. Uh, um, this is going to be helpful to a lot of people. Thank you. So your <laughs> your question was about signs, and uh, I've concentrated on that topic so much. I don't tend to talk about the specific signs in my daughter's relationship because I don't want to depersonalize the folks involved there. But I've found similar signs in many, many cases, and we won't have time to go into all of them, but uh, one of them is shame. And I, I see it in case after case that I read about, and that finally, uh, finally led me to considerable reading on the topic of shame. James Gilligan has uh, two powerful books on violence, is the name of one of them, and the other is Preventing Violence. And his thesis is that at the core of a great deal of human violence is shame. If you look deep enough, and he said it constantly came up in his work. He was the director of mental health services in the prisons in Massachusetts for 20 years. Imagine that job. And with individual after individual with whom he worked, the longer he worked with them, the more he discovered a a deep palpitating shame, a sense of one's worthlessness. And as, as humans, we're constantly concerned about whether we're seen as effective and, and capable. And we worry about it a lot if, if we're not seen that way. We need a degree of shame in our upbringing, otherwise we probably wouldn't be civilized. But it's a crippling emotion. It's one of the ones that I label as at risk, an at risk emotion uh, capable of causing tremendous pain for the bearer and also tremendous confusion. And, and that, title of at-risk emotion, uh, that's from Charles Stewart, a Jungian analyst who examined uh, cases of violence and murder and destruction, Klebold and Harris in, uh, at the Washington High School and so on. So that's an important concept in terms of signs also, one that uh, he referred to uh, sort of a brother or sister of shame, and that's contempt or the, the informal term hatred which I think is highly evident in in many of the cases. 
It also overlaps with mass shooters. I think there's similar forces, psychic forces operating there. And the tag that somebody gave contempt was falling in hate as a parallel to falling in love. And I think that's a remarkable con con conception of it, that it is so overpowering uh, hate and it's attractive in some ways. It gives us tremendous clarity about life, makes us know who's right and who's wrong, and who's with us, who's against us. So it is another at-risk emotion in, in my view. And I can go on quite a while on, on these topics, Gene, and you steer me where it's most helpful. Those are just two of the signs I think we can look for uh, in relationships and in individuals. Judith Herman wrote on signs of shame itself, and she goes into indicators that are important so that we recognize kids who are immersed in shame and bail them out early in life because of the potential pain and the harm they can do to themselves and the harm that they can do to, to other folks. So I can ramble on on signs or you can steer me elsewhere. So Malcolm, let me just back up for one second. Um, could you help us understand or define what you mean by at-risk emotions first? And second, um, how do uh, young people uh, identify those at-risk emotions? Is it simply by conversations and labeling, or are there other means by which they can identify them? But first, let's kind of define them, if you would. Um, the risk part is the risk of experiencing immense pain. That's one risk. The emotions involved with that, such as shame, such as contempt, they can cause tremendous pain in the, in the person who's carrying that emotion, but also can lead to pain for others. The risk part is the pain, the immense pain, and then its secondary effect or a direct effect too, of confusion, that one doesn't know what to do. The, the cognitive capacities are, are sort of unavailable with the experience of the, the at-risk emotions. So it's the pain itself, and, and we're designed not to tolerate pain very well, uh, so it can wreak havoc on us. And the second part is the reduction of, of cognitive capacities to deal with the situation. And the second part of my question was, how in practice do we actually help youth identify these emotions or folks around them that could identify them and, and point them out? You mentioned conversations. Is there more to it than that? Um, I have to think about it. I, I think uh, it's what an awful lot of therapy, in my experience, is about. It's about becoming aware of what one feels, um, giving names to those feelings, allowing yourself to learn uh, adaptive skills, and that often if you wait long enough, the feeling will change. It will subside. It will turn into something else. And to have uh, helpful, loving people around, which is a key protective factor, people who will uh, name the feeling, who will accept it with you, who will help learn how to cope with a specific feeling. The notion of, um, I can't remember the theorists on it, maybe you can, the nonviolent communication effort, the emphasis on looking under the anger that often uh, there's a hidden need that's not being met. 
And if you can learn that formula, is, and that's just one kind of regulation, knowing that there's often something under a very strong feeling. There may be an immediate trigger, and then there may be a whole history of that, that built the feeling and built the idea under the feeling. We often learn who we are. We often create who we are through our life experiences. And to be able to take a feeling and notice when you, when you feel that, what circumstances make that happen. And then in turn to look back as many therapists do, well, where did you learn that? Which is a great question because it means if you can learn how it grew, you can work on dismantling the parts that aren't useful about those experiences. So those are some of the ways, but as I'm sure you know from your own work, it's a, a process over time. It needs to have a basic acceptance involved in it that what you're feeling may be very difficult to bear, but uh, you can develop strengths. You have many strengths and we can work on bringing those to bear as we come to understand those feelings and where they came from and where they're coming from in the immediate moment. That's a start on it, but it's a long process. It's a lifetime process. Love and acceptance, love being acceptance is a terribly important part of the process within the bounds of safety. We can go a long way with establishing, I think, a platform to help our kids and our youth come to recognize their feelings and to develop skills in knowing where they came from and coping with them both in themselves and in others. So when a young person is feeling rage or shame or some other negative at-risk emotion and they recognize it, what should they do? And if another caring adult sees this in, in, a, in a young person, is there something that they can do about it? I think there are a number of uh, strategies. I don't have a clear path. I, I just will <laughs> meander around with you and in, in thinking about the ways an adult would work with a, a child who's feeling one of them. Uh, if We have to take one to work with, and shame was our starting point, but to reflect back, we've already mentioned acceptance is, is crucial of the person. Well, what you're saying is important. Oh, it doesn't mean we're going to stop with what you're saying, but it's our starting point. Let's talk together about uh, what that feeling feels like to you. What, where, does it, where does it feel itself to be? Is it in your head? Is it in your belly? How are you feeling it in your body? And then have you noticed other times when that feeling comes? A, a nice structure that I heard about is with kids who get into patterns of rugged behavior often come, coming from very powerful at-risk emotions. Uh, the, the questions are uh, learning to recognize it uh, in the present, uh, and then working toward anticipating uh, when it will come so that you can be prepared and do something about it. Um, but accepting where it's happening in the present and then uh, moving on toward anticipating it and being able to take action uh, yourself when that powerful feeling shows up. Those are some starts. We That's can go great. Yeah. So, you know, uh, relationship breakups also result in grief, very intense grief in some cases. And we mentioned last week that breakups with friends and romantic partners, for example, are the number one reason 
that students go to counseling centers in college. I was interested in that. Yeah. So, so yeah, it's, it's, it's very powerful data, but, but how can young people process the grief they feel after loss of an important relationship? Are, are, are there specific skills that they need? How can we help them uh, grieve an important loss? There are so many ways to go at it, I think. Uh, and again, uh, we need to start with recognition and acceptance and reflecting back to each other what we perceive. It's another form of the same process we just talked about with uh, other at-risk feelings. And grief, it's terribly wounding. Uh, it can be recurrent. It can bubble up again. It, it involves... Uh, a constellation of, of feelings of personal anguish at something valuable being gone, of great uncertainty about the future. Um, so breaking it down into its chunks, grief uh, can, I think, uh, be gradually accepted. It's different for different individuals. Uh, it takes time and, and revisits, and time itself is an encouraging a great aid in relation to uh, any at-risk emotion, and I think particularly grief, give it some time and, and sit with it, uh, share the pain, the great country and Western song, uh, how can I help you say goodbye, uh, reflects some of the themes. It's all right to hurt, it's all right to cry. Uh, come, come, let me hold you. And I will try to help you learn to say goodbye. There can't be a taking over. It, the grief too uh, has to be, in my view, uh, accepted as a process that parts of which may be semi-permanent as in uh, post-traumatic stress syndrome that can be re-triggered, but there can also be uh, techniques to, to help put the pain of that loss gradually into the past and let it be in the past where it was to hold on to the caring that's inherent in grieving and to encourage the hope of what's, what's to come. The uh, self-talk advice, there's always another train coming almost always, and to be looking for what's coming and its linkage perhaps with what you valued and what's gone, whatever the item is. And I think helping kids developmentally in their lives, hopefully before they face major trauma of loss, the first stuffed animal that was lost, the first goldfish that dies, each one is a, a training for the next one. And learning that it's one of the hardest parts of being a person. Parker Palmer, in, in his good book, On the Brink of Everything, makes the point that we have a choice in the face of loss. And I think it's a brilliant point. And the choice is uh, you can let your heart just harden or, or break into pieces like a grenade. Or, and here's the choice, you can let it break open, open to the incredible fragileness and the lovely caring all around us. Uh, and that provides an incredible strength both to savor uh, life and, and to 
face the partings that eventually come with everything. I don't know if I'm answering Wait. your questions. <laughs> no, that's, that was that was that was really helpful. We we spent a lot of time talking about the the negative risk factors. Can we take a minute to look at some of the positive protective factors in team relationships? What is the importance of positive self-esteem as a protective factor in a potentially dangerous relationship? I think um, that self-reliance, self-esteem, resilience uh, is, is the opposite of shame. So if we have helped establish that in a person that we care for in a friendship or as a, in our offspring, we're, we're doing an incredible job. And we do that, I think, by acknowledging strengths, again, honoring questions and interests. And in that way, we help to, to build that foundation for uh, self-esteem. Uh, it, it doesn't mean it was there first. <laughs> and that's where I get confused about factor. Uh, it's, it's critical that caregivers, parents, siblings, peers, uh, that for each other, we are helping to establish that self-esteem, again, by acknowledging where the person is in a given situation in their minds and hearts, by acknowledging interests, by honoring questions. I love Carol Gilligan's response as she would interact with young girls and helping them grow. Her, her comment often was, do you really believe that? Giving them the chance to say, what they believed. So, uh, Malcolm, is, is there anything else that you would want parents and young people to know about Lauren's story or about the way uh, individuals and communities can work to prevent dating and breakup violence? Um, as we're trying to do a bit today, I, th I think we need to help everybody know the signs, and uh, we, we really just made a beginning on that, but an important beginning. Um, to know the signs, to have people designate, if people know the signs, but there's no one to turn to with whom to register the signs, uh, that something's going on, uh, then we're letting the whole effort down. Um, we're working on a lean on me referral sheet, which I don't know then the end we're going to use, but that's the name of it for now. Uh, that came, contains a list of about 15 of the signs. Uh, and in addition to at risk emotions, they include things like, uh, do you know that this person has somehow faced abuse or neglect? Um, is the person showing signs of aggression, uh, destruction of property at home? Uh, is the person described in detail uh, some plan to harm someone? Uh, uh, has uh, the person shown signs of shame or uh, a lot of hatred of putting down of other people? So this is the lean on me sheet with about 20 different factors and it can be used as an educational tool uh, is one of the possibilities. If people become familiar with that form, that those signs on it, um, then we're probably a third to halfway there. Now, who's going to receive that information and who's going to be designated and what the protocols are 
for intervening in the situation. If we don't help these folks who are saddled with shame, and we're concentrating a lot on that because it's very important, but there, there are other matters to keep in mind. But if we don't uh, find them and intervene and help them uh, with love and, and with considerable force at times, um, they will repeat the behavior. Uh, if you track the histories of numbers of abusers, uh, if they somehow lose hold of one victim, they will find another one. It's their uh, limited set of tools in human relations that uh, keeps the behavior going. They need to learn to uh, accept and love themselves, to grieve the abuse they may ex have experienced elsewhere, um, and to build that esteem so uh, that they don't carry out the behavior on victim after victim after victim, including themselves as victims. Um, that sort of is a sketch of how I see uh, communities working on this. It's a community effort. The community needs to be involved. All of the caregivers need to be part of the network of awareness and targeted intervention until that esteem grows and, and you hope the shame is dissolved. Malcolm, I can't thank you enough for um, for coming on and talking with us about this. And it's been incredibly moving. Um, and um, uh, I, I, it's just been amazing. I, 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 I think that what you've been talking about is not simply about dating and breakup violence. It's sure. about, it's, it's about making this a more loving and peaceful world. Yes. <laughs> it, okay. So, so uh, your efforts, although they began with a horrifying situation, um, I think you've and Mary have broadened to, um, help us all be more aware, be more honoring of each other, uh, and to uh, prevent violence in all of its forms. And I really applaud your work. Well, thank you. I'm uh, afraid I do. I can ramble a bit. I hope we got it knocked down and your editor <laughs> you, you, doesn't go you, crazy. You, you, you did. And you also mentioned some of my favorite um, uh, writers, uh, in particular, uh, Parker Palmer, uh, and Carol Gilligan are two people I go to a lot. And, and I must say, Bill Withers, Lean on Me, is an, an amazing, uh, I mean, it's an amazing song and it's amazing and an important concept. So Good thank evening. you. One other, uh, one other tag point for me is, uh, and it, it seems sort of insane, but the more I reflect on it, the more it works. And that's uh, the story of Cain and Abel. Um, uh, I find when I ask men about uh, their experiences of abuse in their youths, they, it's not an easy question for men to take on. But I occasionally get a bit of a rise when I mention siblings, uh, where some of the hardest self-esteem issues get hammered out, literally. And with Cain and Abel, Cain's gift, what he can produce is rejected by God. And 
Abel's is honored. And there we have the intense experience of shame leading to murder. Oh, it's right before us. It, I don't know why they put the story in there except <laughs> to get us maybe thinking about that. So there's another tag point. Well, thanks. Yep. So uh, in closing, let's uh, talk about the news. <laughs> Khadijah, what struck you in the news this week? So I am going to go back to last week because I didn't get to it until this week, but I finally had the time to go back and watch some of the highlights of the inauguration. And I just was so moved by uh, Amanda and the poem that she read, The Hill We Climb. It was so amazing and inspiring. Um, that was really a highlight. And then I just also love to see the three presidents together. It just always makes me feel warm when I see Bush and Clinton and, and, and Obama together. It just, it just feels like uh, unity. Um, and that's what I feel like it represents every time I see the three of them together. Uh, Malcolm, did anything strike you in the news this week? I uh, keep searching for hope in the uh, the situation, um, but it's easy to be dismayed by what I interpret as the incredible struggles uh, folks have faced that have bred such hate in them. And the hope comes through Amanda's comments about helping people to see. I thought she was wonderful that way. So there's the hard part and the hope part uh, of the news. She did a nice way. She, she brought them together so nicely. Yes. Beautiful. Jane, anything strike you in the news? I'm, I'm afraid to ask. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I, I think what the two of you said was, was so very important. And um, I'll go back to the inauguration as well. But, um, and, and certainly her poem was just unbelievable. Um, uh, be brave enough to be the light, I thought. It's wonderful. Wonderful. And, and I believe it was, it was George Bush. I, I think he was the one that said, as we're trying to heal and unite, um, that we learn to stand in each other's shoes. Uh, and, and in fact, um, understand where the hate comes from. Understand where the joy comes from. Understand where the healing comes from. Understand a lot of the processes in this country. Trying to uh, appreciate, as you were pointing out, Malcolm, where things have come from how they have evolved into certain feelings that could potentially lead to actions for better or worse. And um, so, uh, everybody, thank you so much for listening. And uh, if you have comments or questions, please do uh, send them in. And we hope that our conversation will help you have yours. I'm Gene Bereson. And I'm Khadija Booth Watkins. Thank you.